Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. I still vividly remember the awful day when I received a phone call from a colleague of mine many years ago. It was early in the morning and I just had my shower. Stephen, Melissa and Matthew were eight, six, eight and six and nearly two respectively. Have you watched the news? She asked. No, I said. Turn on the TV now, she said sternly. And I did, and I'll never forget the live images of the World Trade Center in smoke. Terrorists had just hijacked two Boeing planes and flew into the buildings to inflict maximum damage. I remember feeling, this is not real. This can't be real. It must be a scene from an action flick or something. While trying to process everything, Suddenly, without warning, the first tower collapsed, followed by the other, half an hour later. Now, how many of you remember where you were and what you were doing on September 11th, 2001? You know, it's one of those historical events that leaves an indelible mark on you. For some of you, perhaps it was the landing on the moon, the assassination of JFK, the devastation of the Boxing Day tsunami in 2004, or the marriage of Prince Charles and Princess Di, or Australia winning the America's Cup in 1983, and so on and so forth. For others, maybe it was Oprah's interview of Harry and Meghan. Over 2,000 years ago, the most extraordinary history-making, eternity-changing event in all of human history occurred. And of course, I'm referring to none other than the coming of Jesus. What made Jesus one of the greatest influencers in human history? Something that many sociologists and historians agree. He has to be one of the most unlikely world changers as well. A carpenter by trade, he only had a small band of followers when he died after three years of hard slog. He died the death of a criminal with no books to his name, no rich or influential benefactors, Uh, that he can call on with no electronic media at his disposal and with little funds, yet somehow the incredible impact of his life and of his words have echoed throughout the centuries. How did he do this? To answer this question and more, we have the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to thank. They are the most historically accurate, divinely inspired accounts of Jesus that we have. When the different accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus are put together, we get a fuller portrait of who Jesus is, why he came, and what he came to do. But for the next several months, though, until early October, we will just be exploring the gospel according to Mark, the second book in the New Testament segment of the Bible. If you weren't here last week, please make sure that you listen to Denise's great introduction to the book by going to our website. You can easily download it and listen to it uh, at your leisure, on your way to work, while you're doing your chores, exercises. The Gospel of Mark has at least three main focuses. The first is the identity of Jesus. It's the Messiah, the Son of God, which the first half of Mark deals with. And it climaxes with Peter's amazing confession in uh, chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. The second half of Mark, from 831 to 16, verse 8, addresses his mission. And it begins 
in verse 31 with a shocking revelation that as the Christ, Jesus' ultimate mission is to suffer and die on the cross for our sins before being resurrected. However, immediately after this, Mark pens the following words. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Discipleship, that's the third focus of Mark's gospel. In the light of the emphasis that we are placing on the second part of our church theme this year, consecration being set apart for God, the gospel of Mark is particularly fitting. What does it mean to follow Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, our King, and set our lives apart for him? With that, let's uh, look at our text this morning from chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. I read to you from verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, is it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the spirit sent him, sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Writing to non-Jewish readers, particularly in Rome, undergoing persecution under Nero, he begins straight away with a claim that Jesus is the long-promised Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Son of God, the bearer of the Holy Spirit, heralded in the Old Testament. Given Mark's infrequent use of the Old Testament because of his Gentile audience, it is quite remarkable that he begins with the tapestry, or tapestry, sorry, of three Old Testament passages from the first half of Exodus 23:20, Malachi 3:1, and the whole of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, to back his claim. That said, it is introduced with an authoritative formula common 
in both the Greek, Roman, and Jewish worlds, quote and unquote, it is written. In other words, Christianity, Mark says, is not a new thing, but a new message of all news. It is, it is a continuation of the story of God's activity in history going all the way back to the beginning of the creation of the world itself in Genesis. That is what Mark is alluding to with his opening lines, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A scholar by the name of James Edwards makes this assertion. For Mark, quote, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand, unquote. The time of waiting for God's intervention is over. For Jesus is the Christ or Messiah, the fulfillment of all the prophet's longings, the one who would come to rescue humankind from sin and judgment. One more powerful than Satan, whose head he would crush. For Greek-speaking Jews of Jesus' day, they were fully aware that Christ was a title of God's anointed one, which means God's anointed one, the Messiah, who would be the deliverer of Israel and administer God's peace and justice on earth, and not Jesus' family name, as many modern readers assume. It is a title, therefore, that evoked hope and joy. This is why Mark tells his readers that his book is the gospel. Gospel comes from the Old English, God's spell. Gospel is a translation of the Greek noun, noun euangelion, a frequent and favorite expression of mine. It literally means good news, euangelion, good news. Now in Greek literature, euangelion was commonplace. Upon defeating an enemy, uh, a, a herald or messenger would proclaim the gospel. In the Roman Empire, gospel referred to joyous messages about the emperor, such as his birth, his coming of age, and ascension to the throne. Because of his godlike status, you see, there's actually an inscription of a royal proclamation found that hailed the birth of Caesar Augustus the God and the first emperor of Rome is the beginning of the good news for the world. So this means first century readers, particularly in Rome, would have unmistakably known what Mark was driving at by describing his book as the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. He was pitting Jesus against Caesar. This made Mark's gospel very subversive. However, Mark is not just saying, I have good news about Jesus, but Jesus is good news. The very person of Jesus is good news. By applying the term gospel this way, he becomes the first to invent a brand new genre of literature. Not only that, in the Greco-Roman world, the word gospel is always in the plural, but in the New Testament, it appears only in the singular. This means there is nothing like it, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, before or after. 
because God himself in Jesus is personally stepping into this definitive and critical moment in human history to inaugurate the final phase of his rescue plan to save humanity and establish the rule of God or the kingdom of God, which is a spiritual kingdom that represents the triumph of God's plan of salvation over sin and demonic opposition. This good news from God is for everyone in every way, but it also demands a decisive change. It demands a decisive response because news is not advice or instruction about what we are to do. News is there to announce what's about to take place and its significance for us now that we've heard it. For instance, uh, the good news in which research has linked sun exposure to skin cancer and the measures you can take to protect yourself. For the good news to be good, it necessitates repentance, doesn't it? It necessitates a complete change of our mind and behavior regarding sun exposure. You can choose to believe or reject the news, of course, but if the news is true, you ignore it to your peril. This is what Jesus is talking about in verse 15 after triumphing over Satan in the wilderness. His first public message, the time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Mark is not writing to memorialize the great teachings of a great leader or to merely put on paper his life story. He's not writing to inform us about his personality, his character, so we're inspired to be like him. Mark is writing to proclaim the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the God, the Son, the true King, who comes in weakness and service, not in strength and force, to die as a ransom for our sins. Given this, we are to repent, put our faith in him, receive his salvation, and follow him as our Lord and Savior. This is history-making, life-shaping news, as opposed to just daily news. Now, how does it uh, apply to us? Well, this incredible news about Jesus is incredibly significant, important, precious, and immeasurably life-changing and transformational. It is the power of God, according to the Apostle Paul, that brings salvation. Now, all of us would agree with, uh, with, uh, with that. All of us would agree to that. If we do, this surely means we cannot possibly keep this good news to ourselves. And so this begs the question, why aren't we sharing God's good news more often, if that's the case? The reasons are many, but this morning I'll just address two. The first issue is we think words are secondary in importance to actions. And the second issue is we feel inadequate in sharing the gospel. And both of these reasons overlap. To the first issue, there's no way of saying it. Words are necessary. They are not secondary to actions. Words are necessary. 
Let me be honest with you. I do find sharing the gospel daunting and challenging. And that's the reason why I gravitate toward quotes like this one wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Quote, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, when necessary, use words. I gravitate toward it because it gives me a way out of actually communicating the gospel with words. It provides me an escape clause. Do you see that? It gives me a reason not to share the gospel. But the real reason why I don't share the gospel is not because I believe that, uh, that words are secondary in importance to actions. is because I'm afraid. I'd rather not share the gospel. It is not on my to-do list. And I don't know if, if, if that, uh, if that uh, brings you hope or that discourages you completely. I hope it brings you hope. I hope it doesn't leave you with a sense, oh, if the pastor is struggling with, with the notion of preaching the gospel, what hope do I have? Rather, I, I, I hope it, it, it gives you uh, encouragement. Oh, the pastor is struggling with preaching the good, good news. Oh, that's great to know because now I know I'm not the only one. Now, the quote wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi does have a Franciscan quality about it. But my understanding is this, that he never said it. His actual words, though, were this and far more nuanced. I quote, it is not, it is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching, unquote. We need to understand his context, the context when he said it. First, St. Francis uh, lived in a largely pre-literate society. This means verbal communication was essential as a means of passing on information such as the gospel. Therefore, verbal communication played a vital role in spiritual formation, in, in the proclaiming of the gospel. You just couldn't do it with actions. You had to communicate it with your mouth. It was impossible for, for St. Francis not to proclaim the gospel. And he often did it outside the church. An author by the name of Ricky explains, quote, he became widely known for his extra liturgical preaching with sermons being delivered in the open air of piazzas and pastures. He used styles and tactics borrowed from the troubadours of his day, poets, both through romantic prose and foolish frolicking. Without rejecting the traditional liturgies of the church, he broke past the norms and conventions of both the church and the culture to preach in ways that caught people's attention, unquote. However, secondly, the, major, the majority of people who heard his preaching, this is a second context here, the majority of people who heard his preaching were nominal Christians people who were passingly familiar with Christianity. So his quote needs to be understood in this context. St. Francis was not in any way diminishing the necessity of verbally communicating the gospel or that words were secondary in importance to actions, but rather the gospel was not only a message to be verbally communicated, Quoting Ricky again, quote, he saw the th story of scripture to be something to be lived in experience, 
not merely commemorated. He embraced the truth that the authority of the gospel he proclaimed with his mouth was given authority by the nature and character of the life he led. And in the same way, he knew that in, in the spirit of his own failings and that of other Christians, the proclaimed message of hope and love would find fertile soil in the hearts of others so that the gospel must be proclaimed. In other words, there is a place to let your life do the talking, but it cannot be at the expense of, nor as a substitute for actually doing the talking. This is so important, I'm gonna repeat it again. In other words, there is a place to let your life do the talking but it cannot be done at the expense of, nor as a substitute for actually doing the talking. With the second issue of feeling inadequate in terms of sharing the gospel, without writing off the importance of apologetics, which is making a case of Christianity uh, through intellectual arguments, what I think would embolden us share the gospel more is to remember that sharing the gospel is essentially storytelling. After all, the gospel is fundamentally Jesus is good news and good news about what Jesus has done. For instance, we read in John's gospel the description of Jesus being full of grace and truth, but this glorious truth is actually not taught nor explained in the gospels. But what we see is grace and truth vividly in the stories of Jesus. Can you remember the four spiritual laws? I can't, and I bet that you don't either. But you will remember Jesus' response to the woman caught in adultery or to the spice uh, text collector Zacchaeus. Stories of Jesus' compassion, mercy, the display of anger at injustice and self-righteousness. And we can go on and on and on and on and on. But the good news of Jesus is not confined to what he has done for us 2,000 years ago, brothers and sisters. But what he continues uh, to be for us, to do in us and through us in the 21st century. He continues to live on in the 21st century. Kevin Harney, a pastor, writes, quote, through the years, I have discovered that many non-Christians aren't convinced that we believe what we say we believe. In other words, they think we're doing church and playing religion. So when we share real stories of how God is present in our daily lives, what people hear is that our faith is more than punching the church clock for an hour a week when we talk organically about how the presence of God is at work in our daily lives, it can cause people to desire what we have, a living and transforming relationship with the God of the universe, unquote. Of course, we have to be respectful, ask for permission when, when this is appropriate. Avoid using a Christian cliche, like I feel so blessed. Instead say, I'm happier than I've ever been in a long time. Remember, the gospel is good, it is news, and it is about Jesus. 
And people actually like Jesus. They may not like the church too much, but people actually like Jesus. If you remember sharing the gospel is fundamentally sharing stories of who Jesus is to you and what he has done and continues to do in your life, in addition to the stories that you can recite from the gospels, then you can share the gospel after all. Preach the gospel at all times. When necessary, use words, not on your life. So during the week, let me suggest three things. Number one, read the article that I sent you in the new, that's in the newsletter, sharing the gospel in three minutes or less. Number two, read the article uh, sharing the gospel through story. And number three, think of your favorite stories of Jesus. Be it stories uh, in the gospels or stories in your own life. Be familiar with them. And pray for opportunities to share one of them in your front lines when God opens a door. I hope this morning you have felt emboldened to share the good news of Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.